look at your Bible there as you're at 1 Samuel. We're going to be talking today about one of the most pivotal moments in the history of Israel. And as a result, it's one of the most pivotal moments in the history of our faith. And as a result, it's one of the most pivotal moments in the history of mankind. And this pivotal moment in history centers around a mother's prayer. In fact, I saw this quote from a scholar this week that I just thought was so interesting. We're going to talk about Hannah today, all right, in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And it says, Hannah's effect on Israelite society came through the gentle forces of faith and motherhood. Through Hannah, the point is made that women of faith played a legitimate and formative role in shaping Israel's history. Hannah's faith turned the tide of the period of the judges by producing the transitional figure, Samuel. So just to kind of set you where we are in this passage of Scripture, we're going to be introduced in a moment to a a woman named Hannah that we don't know a whole lot more about in the Bible other than these two chapters. And they are significant chapters. When you get to the book of 1 Samuel, you're right after the book of Ruth, which tells a story at the end of the previous book, which is Judges. And the book of Ruth is looking forward to what is going to come down the road in the person of Jesus. Well, what happens in 1 Samuel is those events begin to get set in place. But we have to be reminded that we are at the end of the period that they called the Judges. And if you've ever read Judges, we did a series on this a couple of summers ago. If you've ever read Judges, you know that what is happening at the end of the book of Judges is the lowest point in the history of Israel up to that moment. There was a cycle in Judges where the people would disobey God and God would send judgment and the people would cry out for a deliverer and God would send a deliverer through a judge. And the people would be okay for a little bit and then the people would rebel against God and they would disobey and God would send judgment and they would call out for a deliverer and God would send a deliverer. But as you walk through the book of Judges, the cycle is not that they're restored back to where they were. Each cycle of that disobedience, calling out, restoration, each cycle of that disobedience gets worse and worse and worse until you get to the end. And I won't tell you the whole story. We don't have time for all that. But a horrific ending happens in the book of Judges. And the people and the nation that had come out of bondage into the promised land are in a desperate situation where they have terrible leadership and where they have factions dividing them all over the place. And they are in need of spiritual good leadership. As we enter into 1 Samuel, Eli, who is the priest, he's a man that is honorable in ways, but his sons, as we would find out later in the next couple of chapters, are not. And they are the prescribed next leaders of Israel. And as we start, we're introduced to this woman who is not in a great place. We're actually going to start in verse 2. Verse 1 is a little bit of background knowledge, but verse 2 is where we get to hear about this man named Elkanah and his wives. The Elkanah had two wives. The first named Hannah, and the second one named Panini. Not really, but it's close enough. I've almost said Panini four or five times, so I just get that out of the way at the first. I may say that. It's Pinaniah, but it looks like Panini. And some of you are already hungry, and I apologize for that. 
And then it just gives us a statement. Benaiah had children, but Hannah was childless. Now that little statement there gives more information than we can, can process even in just a couple of minutes. First of all, let me just say from the very beginning, the elephant in the room, the Bible never commends multiple wives, but it happens. Now here's the interesting thing about that in Scripture, because people talk about that sometimes. Every time it shows up in Scripture, it is a negative thing that happens. Okay? So we have a situation where there is Hannah, who was the first wife, the one that he married at first, and then the second wife, Benaniah. Now, here's an interesting little thing about why he may have had a second wife. The reason he had a second wife may be explained to us in this particular passage. Because if a man married someone who could not give him children, he had to find other ways to have children. In that culture, according to them. Because childlessness was a horrific thing for someone to bear, for a female or especially for a male too. I don't mean that more than the female, I just mean that he had his line traced to it. There are a few reasons for that. First of all, they were an agrarian society, agriculture was their deal, and the more sons you had, the more children that you had, the more fields you could take care of, the more fields you could take care of, the more crops you had, the more crops you had, the more food you had to sell, the more you had to sell or trade or barter, the richer you could become. So unlike today, where statistics show us that more kids you have sometimes leads to more responsibilities, the more kids in their day you had was you were richer because of it. Secondly, I know this may come as a shock to you, they didn't have any 401k plans back then. And your retirement plan was other people taking care of you, as in your kids. So the more kids you have the more people you had to take care of you in older age. Thirdly, the economic and military health of a society was based upon how many people you had. And so every family was expected to contribute. And on top of that, you had the promise of God that the Israelites or his people would propagate the earth. And so if you weren't participating in providing children for the promise of God, you were seen as someone who had a problem in your life that could not be explained. Another scholar, Walter Bergman, says, Barrenness, not having children, in any ancient text, is the effective metaphor of hopelessness. For without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, or for your people. And so in verse 2, when it says, And Hannah was childless, it tells us that she is in a desperate state. Verse 3, Elkanah, this man, would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. When Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to each of her sons and daughters. That was ritual. That's what you were supposed to do. You give a portion of it. Verse 5, but he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Let me just say real quickly, that's not true of every single person that the Lord prevents them from conceiving, those that can't have children. But in Hannah's case, it seems to be a process and a part of the Lord's plan specifically for her life. So here she is. 
in a difficult place. Every year they go to worship, and as they go to worship, she is reminded through the ritual of how she doesn't have a child. Even if he gave her double portion, it was pity giving. And on top of that, it tells us in verse 6, her rival, an interesting choice of words for her, for the other wife, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. So to add insult to injury, Penaniah would continually provoke her. By the way, the word used there for provoke is only used of an internal situation or provoke her to, to misery is only used of an internal situation once in the entire Old Testament, and it's right here. And it means every other time a great storm arose. And the picture here is of inside of Hannah is a great storm raging inside of her. Now, I'm sure for all of us in this room, there have been moments in our lives when there is something that has been denied of us, maybe that we have desired or wanted or longed for or prayed for or asked for. It seems that year after year, Hannah would go with these and pray and ask God for a child. And year after year, she was denied. And I'm sure in our lives, there are moments where we, in the same ways, are continually turned away or told no or feel like the Lord is not answering, the Lord is not accepting us, is not hearing us, is not looking upon us. And the question is, how do we react in that moment? Verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, would ask, Hannah, why are you crying? By the way, this is his attempt to be a sensitive male, and he fails completely. Shocking, I know. And all of God's men said, amen, we've been there. Hannah, why are you crying, her husband say? Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? And here's the line. Aren't I worth more than ten sons to you? You know what her answer to that is? No. Right? Doesn't that sound like, hey, aren't I, aren't I enough? Aren't I enough, babe? Come on. I'm good enough, right? No. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh, and the priest Eli was sitting on the chair by the doorpost. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Let me just tell you that there's a word in there that just kind of goes by, that Hannah got up after they ate, and it just kind of gives the picture of just standing up from the table and leaving or, you know, being excused. But the word that is used there is a purposeful moment of decision. Hannah decided at that moment. She got up. She decided to do something about this. She goes to the Lord and she prays with many tears. And making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forgive me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. That sounds like a lot of teenage boys' dreams. 
But here's the point that's being made here. By the way, she is infusing this prayer with language of the exodus, of the moment when they were crying out, God, would you deliver us? Because they literally said, Lord, would you look upon us and remember your promise? Would you look upon us and remember us? And she is saying, just as you did with the Israelites that were in bondage in Egypt, when you looked upon them and through miraculous ways delivered them from their situation, Lord, would you look upon me and deliver me? Would you look upon me and remember who I am? And then when it says there at the end, and if you do that, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him right back to you. I will dedicate him to you. I will give him to you. The, the idea that the hair would not be cut. There are some discussion about that. It's definitely what they call a Nazarite vow. But the point of it is that she would not only say as in a kind of spiritual, um, kind of a kind of a mystical way, God, I will let him be your son and do whatever you want with him. She literally is saying, if you would give me a son, I will in turn return him to you, take him to the temple, never cut his hair, dedicate him to you, and give him up to be raised in the temple as a priest for your glory. Now think about the sacrifice that is there. God, if you would give me a child, I will give him right back. And it's not like they had... um, text message and FaceTime and all of that, she wouldn't see him except maybe once or twice a year. Now, she was so fervent in this praying. It tells us she's crying. It tells us she's pouring out her heart to God. It is so evident in this place that she is giving everything she has, so much to the point that Eli, who is the priest, it tells us in verse 12, while she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard, and Eli thought she was drunk. Now, how intense do you have to be in your praying for people to think that you have had too much to drink? Now, I know we're Baptists. We're not supposed to act like we know what that looks like. But let's pretend for a moment. Right? How intense do you have to be in your prayer? This wasn't a, hey, God, if you would do this, I'd appreciate it. This is sweat and pouring everything you have into it. He says to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. And she says, no, my Lord, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. And Eli responded, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. And in verse 18, it says, may your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way and she ate. And no longer looked despondent. Quick point there. What's interesting is the progression that we have here. Notice that it goes, Hannah prays. She develops joy. She's not despondent. She eats again. And then the Lord provides for her a son. It's not the other way around. It's not that Hannah prays, God provides, Hannah develops joy. She has joy before the answer ever comes because she has poured her out to the Lord. In that relationship, she is sure. The story says in verse 19, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship. And afterward, they returned home. Elkanah was intimate with his wife. And the Lord remembered her. It's a beautiful picture of what she prayed he did 
sometime. Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. Samuel means the name of the Lord. And when Elkanah and all his household were to make the animal sacrifice and his vow offering up to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explain to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him up to the Lord's presence and stay there permanently. Her husband said, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. By the way, just so you know, that would have been when he was about three years old. So he was three when she took him. In verse 24, with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. That was an expensive offering. And the boy was still young. She took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. They slaughtered the bull, brought the boy to Eli, and said, Please, my Lord, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here before you praying. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he has given to the Lord. Then there's an interesting little thing. Then he, that Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. It's a remarkable story in and of itself. This woman that is hurt at the deepest level of disappointment goes to the Lord, prays and makes a vow that says, I am asking for an answer to a big prayer. But in that response, I'm going to dedicate the answer back to you, Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom, for the sake of your nation. And when God gives her the answer to her prayer, she then dedicates that answered prayer back to the Lord. And in chapter 2, we have one of the most famous prayers In all of scripture. Hannah prayed. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up to the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. By the way. That's a general friends. I'm I'm, I'm rejoicing over my enemies. I'm shouting over my enemies. But I also think that it's a very pointed one. For Penaniah. She cannot hold it over me anymore because you are the Lord. Verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you and there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childly gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He sits them with the nobleman and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of its faithful one, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. And he will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of the anointed. By the way, verse 11 tells us that they went home. And as they went home, the boy served in the presence of the priest, Elah. Here's what we know from this passage of scripture. 
we know a couple of things about the power of prayer in the midst of this mother's life. And the first one is this. Hannah was transformed by her prayer. We saw that in that little snippet where she went from despondent and not eating to having in that moment being transformed into the person who was no longer despondent, that was eating, that was encouraged because of it. But we see it even more in this particular prayer of hers in chapter 2 because she says that she was changed from the hopeless to the one full of hope, to the childless to the mother, from the one who had been beaten and downtrodden to now the one who has been lifted up. Hannah was transformed by her prayer. Secondly, we know from this passage of Scripture what comes forward, that the nation of Israel was transformed by her prayer. Samuel would become one of the greatest leaders of that nation. He would become a great priest. He would become a prophet. He would become the one that anointed the king of Israel. He led the people out of the time of the judges to a place where they were together and at least attempting in some ways to follow the Lord in a more cohesive manner. And because Hannah was transformed by her prayer and the nation of Israel was transformed by her prayer, history was transformed by her prayer. One of the interesting parallels that happens in the New Testament is there was another mother at the beginning of the New Testament that had a child under strange circumstances when she was being ridiculed because of it. And in the midst of that, we are given what we are called the Magnificat, where Mary, after giving birth to the Savior of the world, Jesus, prays and gives praise to God. And it is almost as if she is paraphrasing Hannah's prayer here. You see, Hannah gave birth to Samuel, the priest and the prophet and the one that anointed the king. But Mary gave birth to the great high priest, the final prophet and the king of kings. And what we see from this passage is all of that is put into motion in a serious way. Samuel leads to Saul, leads to David. And in the line of David comes Jesus. In the midst of all of that, we see that her prayer transformed the world. Which leads us to understand that true prayer transforms. It transforms the situations in our lives sometimes. But more than that, the purpose of prayer is to be transformed by the presence of Christ in our own life. So what do we do out of this passage? Three things that we're going to cover very quickly. And the first one is this, is trust the Lord. No matter the circumstances. Can I be honest that one of the most convicting things about this particular passage of scripture is that she trusts the Lord in the midst of her biggest difficulty. She trusts the Lord after she has prayed and she trusts the Lord even when he answers. Sometimes we break down in that spectrum on our own. Maybe you're here today and there is something that's weighing on your heart, an answer to a prayer that hasn't been given. You don't understand what's going on in your life. And in this moment, what God is asking you to do is to trust him, to depend on him, to seek him, to go after him. The first lesson we learn from this passage of scripture is that we are to trust the Lord. The second one that we understand is that we are to pray big prayers. Hannah was asking God... For the impossible. Scripture makes it very clear. Without God's intervention, she was not going to have a child. Zero percent chance. 
And she was begging the Lord for big answers. And here's what I want to tell you personally and as a church. Is you cannot come up with an ask that is too big for our God. You cannot come up with an ask that is too big for our God. Now you have to remember it has to be in his wills. We talked about a couple of weeks ago. It has to be for his purposes. But you can't come up with an ask that God goes, oh, I can't handle that one. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to even say that, right? But sometimes we act like in our life and we refuse to bring things to the Lord. Well, that's too big. That's too much. I just can't right now. You cannot come up with an ask that is too big for the Lord. Do you need healing in your life? You ask the Lord. Do you need forgiveness in your life? You ask the Lord. Do you need to be able to give, forgive someone else? You ask the Lord. Do you need something in your life that is weighing on you that you don't understand, that you can't get an answer for? Ask the big prayers of God. And trust Him in the midst of it. And as you seek the Lord and trust Him, as you pray big prayers, then you also need to receive your transformation. That sounds kind of weird, but what I mean by that is be willing to learn and change however God calls you to do so. Whatever that means. One way we've talked about that in the past, David Platt was famous for kind of making this, is that when you come to the Lord and you pray and you bring things to him, you write a blank check and hand it to him and say, you fill in whatever you want. That's a dangerous practice in general. Amen. I mean, if any of y'all would like to write a blank check and tell me to fill it in however we want for the purposes of the Lord here at the church, we could oblige you in that. But you're talking about with your life. Yeah, that's what God calls us to do. And basically Hannah said, Lord, this is what I want. And I'm willing to give whatever you ask if you provide this for me. Receive whatever it is the Lord wants to bring into your life with surrender. As we've walked through over the last few weeks, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've added things to our understanding of what prayer is kind of each week. And we begin to put those together as kind of a last moment. And I want to do that today. And just remind us of what prayer is in its essence. is a transformational conversation with our Heavenly Dad. Where we exchange our hearts, desires, and will for His. It's a conversation where we just give Him our attention. We ask Him big things. We trust him and we say we want to do your will in your way. So my question for you, whether you're a mother here or not, what do you need from the Lord today? What are you asking of the Lord? What is your big ask of the Lord? And are you willing to be transformed by him in either answering it the way you desire or in a way that is different than you want? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that we'd be willing to ask big prayers, to pray bold prayers for you. And we'll trust you with the answers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.